how did we get from this to this? Comics and brain research are two things you don't normally associate with each other. But a collaboration between a University of Auckland comic expert and brain researchers plus illustrators aims to raise awareness of brain tumours. Well, the answer is, it's all about perception. Because if you thought comic books were all pow, sock, bang, they aren't. And from the very beginning, they weren't. I'm Alexia Russell, and today on The Detail, the evolution of comic books and where they're heading. Comics have been around a lot longer than people think, and they will be around a lot longer. But they they will evolve, they will change, but they will always be here. And why Auckland University has paired up a comics expert with its brain researchers. A lot of clinicians and a lot of academics, a lot of people working in science and health, I think are becoming increasingly aware of the power and potential of comics. Comics don't just exist within the arts faculty or the creative arts faculty. They have been used for a long time within medical and health institutions and teaching. This is the comics expert, Professor of Media and Screen Studies, Neil Curtis. So I met Thomas Park at at a workshop, let's say, a research workshop where the university is looking to fund innovative research. And I was going to try and get money to set up the comics lab. But Thomas said, look, I really want you to work with me because I want to advocate for a brain tumour registry, which we don't have in New Zealand, and clinical trials, which we don't have in New Zealand. I want to use the medium of comics. Neil got into comics when he was doing his PhD, buried in philosophy and theory. I needed a little bit of fiction in my life, so I thought I'd go to a comic shop and try and get a tiny little slice of fiction that I can fit in between all the academic reading. And um, what I discovered in the comic shop was this extraordinary world of storytelling that kind of blew me away. So I've been writing largely around superheroes, but I've been very interested in subfields in comic studies, which are called graphic science and graphic medicine, which is where you use comics to speak about issues in science or medicine and and health. When I finished my last book which was called Hate in Precarious Times, and it was like a study of the resurgence of the far right and how it had been mainstreamed. Um, After concentrating on that for three years, I got rather depressed, as you might imagine. Um, And the last chapter was about what I'd call our epistemological precarity, the way knowledge has come under threat in the age of post-truth, conspiracy theories, alternative facts, and all that other nonsense, right? And the pandemic hit and there was a really sort of anti-science, anti-expert kind of feeling coming to the surface, although not amongst the majority of New Zealanders, of course. And it just made me, because of that last chapter, I've been thinking so much about it. And I'd had this interest in graphic science and graphic medicine. And I thought, no, this is the time to shift my research, right? And to see how my knowledge of the comics medium can be used to help disseminate knowledge and support truth and support evidence and support facts. So that's when I started going to my colleagues and saying, hey, I do comics, who wants to translate stuff? The result is a collaboration with brain researchers to create eight comics dealing with various issues connected to brain tumours. It works at two poles, right? You've got the, the academics who are trying to communicate and disseminate their research and access different audiences, right, outside of academia and clinical institutions. So they're trying to find a way of translating. I suppose it's like public information, right? They're public information comics to try and disseminate, raise awareness and so on, right? So that's 
the academics trying to find a voice to speak to broader publics. At the other pole, you've got individual comics creators who have suffered from an illness, a disease, some kind of debilitating condition or have a disability, right? And they use comics as a vehicle to kind of speak back to the medical institutions, right? Because if you think about it, medicine is all about the universal, right? It's trying to find all the symptoms that allow somebody to make a universal diagnosis that this is an instance of this general disease. And so they talk about the disease and often the clinicians forget about the patients, right? So people who've had these experiences use comics to to get back to the particular, the individual, the singular experience of disease, mm. how disease touches down in a particular context, how it affects a family, how it affects a particular person, how it intersects with all kinds of other things like gender, race, ethnicity, right, sexuality. So at that end, you've got individuals who are completely outside of medical establishment trying to speak back to clinicians, right? And some of those comics are now being incorporated into medical practice to help students develop empathy and awareness and a sensitivity to difference. Because this is one thing a lot of, you know, patients complain about is that it was all very efficient but cold and, you know, so-and-so didn't explain it to me. I didn't understand the way he explained it to yes, me. Yes, uh, or that people, they didn't feel people were listening or they didn't hear the specific thing I was telling. Translating the boffin speak. Well, or, or, or filling in the gaps. What the, what the academic is not seeing, right? They're trained in a certain discourse, certain methods, certain processes um, often in that the, the specific individual gets lost because what they're seeing is an illness and to to deal with this illness we need to look at all of the things about the illness which we understand and know how to treat and what gets lost in that is the person with the illness yeah. right so it's trying to put the person back into clinical practice so now we have comics on cancer, mental health issues like depression and anxiety, and more recently on neurodivergence. It's become its own mini cottage industry. And you've got individual patients or people who've experienced illness, disability, disease, whatever, trying to speak back to the medical establishment. So it's this really interesting kind of two-way process. Yeah. And at, at the moment, some really interesting things are happening in that space. Like and stuff that you're doing with the brain research. Like, like the stuff with the yeah. brains research. And we're doing everything from... We're doing a comic with Janina Godin, who's this extraordinary kind of um, illustrator, comics artist and so on. We're doing one comic. The first one we're completing is on the lab flow for, for tests. Like, so what happens after your blood leaves you? Well, what happens when you're, you get a test on a tumour, right? Right. Right. How, how is it tested? What's the process? Incredibly dry, yeah. right? But Janina's made it look lovely. She's done this, done this virtually completely pink comic. <laughs> and this is not, I presume, aimed at just children. It's no, aimed no, no. at everybody. This, this is for really for adults with brain tumours, right? Because what people don't understand, what I found from the, our partner Brain Tumour Research, which is the, the charity in New Zealand, it came actually from Chris, the, the director there, Chris T. He, he, he said, we need this because we get so many questions about why tests are taking so long, what happens, where, where are the results, right? We need to show them. So we've got this comic that literally goes through all the stages of the process and it's done as a scrolling comic for mobile phones so rather than a traditional comics okay. page. So you, you a, don't get it in a paper form? You can do. It'll be as a PDF you could download, but really it's for access via mobile phones so people can just flick and scan. 
graphic medicine, graphic science, and there's graphic journalism too. The one I'm reading at the moment, I think it's called Everything You Need to Learn About Israel in 60 Days or something by Sarah Glidden, a young Jewish American woman who went on a birthright trip to Israel. And it's basically a, a journal, autobiographical journal, of what she learnt on that trip. So it's part journalism, part autobiography. But how do the illustrations fit into that? Oh, the illustrations are beautiful, right? So she draws with a sort of very delicate line and she uses watercolour. So the, the effect is kind of very soft, warm, inviting. But she does one really amazing thing, and this is also something that comics are very good at. At certain points in... Uh, the comic, she she layers sort of temporal moments, so she can be talking about a particular thing. So the text and the, her in the present, learning about something or talking about something, but the picture, the background behind her, is that actual time period. And she does this repeatedly, where she shows the layering of time. And of course, as you know, particularly important in Israel, P Palestine, right, where. Mm. This layering of history is so crucial to what's happening now. So this is another important thing that comics can do. TV and film can sort of do it, but I think it, it's too much for the viewer if you do it often. Right. But in comics, you can do it all the time. Maybe you haven't picked up a comic lately, but thousands of people have. Like my son Connor at the pop culture convention Armageddon in Auckland over the weekend. I found him browsing through boxes and boxes of them and chatting to Iron Age Comics shop owner David Cryer. And then you've got these ones here. It's another one, Tablet of Destinies. They're all quite different series. But Marvel and DC do this as well. They'll I guess you'd say David is a more traditional comic guy. Like for me personally, I collect Iron Man, so I have a standing order at my local comic shop where I get every single Iron Man comic, so I've got the sequential run. I guess it makes sense. I mean, how long has Iron Man been going on, right? It's 1963. 63? So, do you get every comic in that run, you, you know? Which I have. You've got every, yeah, every Iron do, Man I comic. Well, well, I discovered after I started collecting Iron Man, I was born in February 1963, Iron Man, Tower of Suspense 39, which we've got on the wall over there for five grand. That is, uh, it's got a March cover date on it, but it actually was printed in February. So I discovered that it started on my birthday. It's so it was a bit of a it. nice little thing. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. How much does a top, top of the line Iron Man comic go for? Like, what's the most expensive? Well, if you had a high grade, one of those Tower Suspense 39, you'd be looking at the thick end of 150 grand. Damn. And I it's know that's not high. the most expensive. I know in Action Comics 1 is the most expensive. Yeah, well, that sold for, what, 3.2 million to a guy who was the son of the Lebanese Prime Minister who got assassinated. His son ended up with all the money. He's put together the Impossible Collection and he bought two copies of Action One for 3.2 million. But just because some comics have appreciated and value out of sight, it doesn't mean there's a lot of money in it. You're not going to make a killing, but you're, you're going to do okay. There's a lot of comic shops, less brick and mortar comic shops now because the internet's so successful. People are selling on Facebook, Instagram. Trade me, eBay, you name it. Do you sell online for this store? We are going to, but at the moment we're doing the face-to-face -face because people get to see a lot of comics. They would. It's, it's difficult because you you take photos of everything. You can imagine 100,000 comics we've got. Every one on photo online would take forever. Whereas people going through boxes, they see stuff. But online is well, it is the future. But I 
personally like going and meeting the retail. I like to meet collectors. That's why I like, I like to hear their stories about why they collect. There's the story about people with illness reasons. There are other reasons too, so it's always interesting. We had the, the COVID boom in 2020. What happened if, there? Was if you look just... at the chart of comics across time, there's a, a appreciation which is pretty steady, a nice line, and then COVID hit, and all collectibles worldwide spiked up massively in value. But it's been unwinding since the end of 22. Prices are coming back to the normal trend line as things become normal again. Awesome. So I take it that selling these isn't just for readers now, it's, it's actually an investment license. Yeah, but so. a lot of people who collect comics, they actually do collect what they love. Oh, yeah. But okay. some people have got more money than others, I suppose. I mean, having owning every Iron Man comic must have set you back quite a pretty penny. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a labour of love. I've been collecting for 45 years, so I've had plenty of time to yeah. do it. Yeah. Awesome. How big is the scene in New Zealand, though? Because I mean, it's I know pretty it's... healthy. I'm yeah. really impressed, actually. Awesome. A lot um, of collectors from all over New Zealand coming here. People have flown up from Invercargill. It's everywhere. It's a it's an international hobby. That's what's quite fun about it. You could go to a convention in the US and you'll meet like-minded people. A lot of comic collectors are cover collectors and I'm one so I love the art on the cover so I want to buy all the comics so I just love looking at the cover art because that's where they spend all the money with the artists is in the comic cover. The internals can be really good too but what's going to sell it on a rack? It's you look at it and go I have to own that comic because of the cover. So the love of art, the investment, yeah. do they have another purpose? I mean like education, information? Oh, 100% yeah you know well you've got a classics illustrator the classic one. Well, my father rest in peace, he told me he passed his English exam by reading the Classics Illustrated comic and getting through. So yeah, they, they do educate. And we've got educational comics here on ancient history, all sorts of stuff. A particular comic I like is called Age of Bronze. It's all about the Trojan War. That's really cool. Romance comics are going through a big boom at the moment. Yeah, who needs, we all need a bit of romance in our lives, so yeah, there you go. Historically, comics have been a very boy thing, aren't they? You know, like what Target. I'm noticing, at every convention I go to, more young women buying comics, and they're more and more serious. It's really good. Yeah, the demographic is widening, isn't it? It is, really time. is widening, yeah. and they're buying interesting comics. It's really interesting, because when I was young, I, became, I was quite ill when I was young with a leg problem, and I used to spend a, too much time in bed. And I've noticed that people like me, we tend to collect books and comics, and I think a lot of people have maybe have had some sort of health issue at some point, something they tend to go into that world and it's a great community you meet so many like-minded people you're always meeting interesting people. Armageddon started out nearly 30 years ago but it wasn't always the huge four-day fiesta of cosplay sci-fi and gaming that it is today. We're an event that's evolved as we go and we've we've always been we were Armageddon comic and trading card convention the first few years but there's just not that much comics in New Zealand so we changed to Pulp Culture Expo and now we're just Armageddon because everybody knows Armageddon in New Zealand. Armageddon organiser and founder Bill Gerritz is also a writer and a comic book publisher. He owns Beyond Reality Books. So initially comics was a big thing. It was, it was definitely a thing I was big into, but there's really only ever been two or three stores in Auckland and only a few others, like Graphic and Wellington's been around forever, but it's one of the only really long-standing comic stores. It's, a, it's an industry that's that had some, in the 90s and early 2000s, really was pumping. 
You know, I remember going into Auckland City on a Friday night and the, the, everybody was waiting for the weekly shipment that had just arrived. And if it got delayed, you'd have to come back the next day. And there'd be just, I don't know, about 50 to 100 people just waiting and then would send on it like piranhas and read them. Um, and I haven't seen that kind of thing. It's the thing that's faded with the industry changing. The big change, of course, is that it's gone digital. Digital's a lot harder because it's really hard to monetize it. But if you want to get the books out there, it's a great way to explode. But you have to invest a lot of time and energy in promotion and um, going on Reddit and, and doing places, a lot of extra work beyond just doing the books. Um, and most people put out a page a day or a page a week or something like that. And there's, there's ways to do that that can really work. Um, and you can do them digitally and then print them. And that's always been the thing. I, I, when I first got into publishing, I thought print was dead, digital is the way, I'm going to do a digital book. And the problem with that is there's no money in digital. It's really almost impossible to, for a, an independent guy to monetize a digital comic. And so you need to print them to sell something. Some of them, I mean, some of the, you look at these Marvel collections are amazingly expensive. You know, oh, yeah. you can pay hundreds for them. Yeah. And you would think, well, where's the audience? But here we are at Armageddon. Here is the audience. Well, but that's the thing is that you'd think so. You'd think that comics would be in their heyday, that, that with all the Marvel movies and superhero movies, that the comics would be selling mass, And they're not. If anything, they're probably selling less than they ever have. Um, because the different mediums, they don't necessarily... Um, promote each other. Right, you so know? you see a movie and, the, and it doesn't inspire you to go and buy the comic. Go to see a Wonder Woman movie, you know, walk out the door and go, where's that Wonder Woman comic? I'm going to read that. It happens, I'm sure, and it, it should happen more, but it just just doesn't seem to cross over. And, um, like, PlayStation are giving away Spider-Man comics, and a lot of people are getting them, and hopefully some of those guys will read more Spider-Man comics. But invariably, it'll be something they'll collect, but it won't be something they'll go on with. So are you seeing graphic novels morph into different purposes? I mean, we're talking about explaining things like diabetes and the human body to people. That Oh, yeah. That like comics have always done that kind of thing. There's always been um, horror comics or science fiction comics or normal comics or, like you said, stories. Kids' books are very much comics to a degree, just with the words at the bottom instead of in balloons. Comics have been around for a very long time and they really do contribute to just this incredible diversity of, of interest and, and uh, information. Most people think of comics in terms of that, that use of, of language and pictures or text and image and multiple units on a page, right, which we call the comics grid or the multi-frame or page layout or, or whatever. Right? That's what people tend to think of as a, as a comic. Of course, comics are called all kinds of things in different c countries, but the c comic, as we use it in the ang sort of Anglo-American tradition, comes from the, the, the fact that what we know to be comics first appeared as the funnies, inserts in newspapers, which were used to basically sell newspapers. They were free sort of promo material to encourage people, right? Which is why actually comics have that pamphlet shape, because they were used to fit into a folded newspaper. Um, so they're called comics because they're linked to the funnies, but comics have always been very serious, right? The origin of comics, I would say, goes back to when uh, Rudolf Topfer, a Swiss teacher, did his first strip in 1827, and he was deeply admired by Goethe, and he was incredibly innovative and very radical. He was a kind of social conservative, but an aesthetic radical. And these comics were parodies of 
the, the mores of his contemporary time, and he sort of mocked a lot of the ed- educational in- institutions and stuff. So these were very adult comics. The first comics were adult comics, and they developed through the illustrated press um, throughout the 19th century in France and the UK in particular, so where cartooning developed. But alongside that, you also had the development of multi-panel cartoons, which became comics as we know them. But these were very innovative visually and often dealt with more adult themes. They weren't for children. It was really these funny pages that were both for adults and kids. And then there was the moral panic in the kind of 30s, 40s, 50s, particularly post-war in America, where everybody was worried about what kind of comics kids were reading. Mm. And Comics Code was introduced in 1954 in America, and all of the serious stuff was taken out of American comics. So it's gone from being festival designed for adults through a stage where children were mainly aimed at, and then we're back now. And then we're back now, yeah. And the same thing happened in France post-war. They were really... French comics have become integral to the post-war French identity, right? And comics were actually used to build proper French children. So the relationship between comics and the state in France is completely different to in America. Band dessinée, as they're called in France, are now seen as, as these kind of amazing kind of objects and artefacts that are revered because they have this sort of close connection to the sense of French identity. So in various cultures, it's... It's different. But, but yeah, there's been that transition. And, I mean, you could argue that the first really long-form comic in, in the Anglo-American tradition was Binky Brown meets the Holy Virgin Mary, which was in 1972, which was long for its time. But interestingly enough, Binky Brown was actually graphic medicine also oh. because it was about his obsessive-compulsive disorder. OCD. Do we get the modern equivalent of that now, people writing about their... Oh, yeah, absolutely. So what you've got is this longer-form comic. People tried to give it a new name, partly because they wanted to market it differently, partly because they wanted to get into mainstream literary publishing lists, so we got this term, the graphic novel. But the model of the graphic novel can also be seen in Japanese manga as early as 1958, so you could argue that the graphic novel started in Japan. But, yeah, so now you've got women talking about their experience of eating disorders. Um, Lighter Than My Shadow by Katie Green. Massive graphic novel, absolutely beautiful, uh, really intimate and profound. Paula Knight's Facts of Life, which is about her infertility and experiences with ME. As an amazing book, this is the title, so I'll say it's called The Story of My Tits. And she had breast cancer. Extraordinary mm. books, these are incredibly intimate and profound and we've got there's, there's one called barking which is about complete mental breakdown which is drawn in a way that it, the, where the grids of the comic completely fall apart it, you know in her in her own mental b- breakdown and it's about her trying to get things back together and as she does the grid of the comic slowly starts to yeah. form as well you know it's a, um, really incredible incredible stuff out yeah. there and one last word from neil If any child struggles at all with reading, whether it's because they have a specific condition or whether they're just slow to it, just give them loads and loads of comics and you will benefit from it. 
That's it for today. I'm Alexia Russell. The details supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by Phil Benj and produced by Bonnie Harrison. Thanks to Neil Curtis, Bill Gerritz and David Cryer. Ka kite anō. 